0: to Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast where we dismantle the media misinformation that floods our news feeds all week long. The media tries to mislead you literally every day. Each episode of this podcast will leave you more equipped to correctly interpret the news and spot their deception quicker than before. This is Luke Taylor, an austere religious scholar who will be your host in this roundup of the past week of Fake News. And I'm going to start off by saying... This has been a rough week. I mean, this has been a really, really horrible week. Not talking about for me personally, but I'm talking about the news from Texas. And uh, honestly, hearing about the the school shooting down there and the, oh, I think it was 19 kids who were tragically, I mean, horrifically killed in that shooting, and as well as a few adults, um, that just really brought me down this week. Uh, I mean, it just really, it just settled on me heavy like a cloud, and i don't know just like tuesday wednesday thursday those were just kind of rough days for me um and on as the week went on it kind of got worse if i could say that it, it got worse just as we learned what a colossal failure that the law enforcement did down there of responding to that that whole situation and we're going to talk about that a little bit today but honestly i just it's making me upset right now just to even reference all this stuff that has been going on um so I didn't want to lead with that today. I do want to share a few thoughts on that, but I want to save that for the end this time. Um, it's what we've already been hearing about all week anyway, and if you don't want to hear about that, that's okay. I want to talk about some other stuff first. I want to offer a bit of a distraction. That's that's what I want this episode to be, just a bit of a distraction, and um, I could not get this episode out on Friday like I had hoped to, um, Friday morning. I woke up, and I was sick. I think it was something I ate the night before, and I was I was sick and uh, j- was not able to come into work, wasn't, was not able to record a program or get this out. So I'm actually, I'm just going to schedule it for uh, Memorial Day, because I thought, well, probably a lot of the, the regular podcasts that you listen to, if they come out with episodes on Mondays, they probably aren't going to have one on Memorial Day, so... Uh, you'll get one of these. You'll get a fake news. And if you want to tune in to Cross References, that's my Bible study podcast. I have a new episode of that one coming out on Monday as well. So what I want to offer today are just some distractions from all that stuff going on. Uh, some, Just some news to clear our minds from all that. Uh, and a little bit of it is political. It's not all going to be political. Some of it will be. Um, in fact, we'll start with a political story. Something that I think I think the the shooting at Texas was on Tuesday... And so that that probably distracted us a lot from um, or that that just pulled our attention away from something else important that was going on on Tuesday. And that was the primaries in Georgia. And this was a significant primary because Georgia is kind of one of those swing states. It's one where you can't really predict, you know, you used to predict that it was going to be a pretty solidly Republican state. But um, that changed here with the last election. I remember kind of like, you know, smirking whenever uh, President Joe Biden was was campaigning down there towards the end of the last election cycle. And I thought, well, does he really think he has a shot? And turns out he did. Uh, he actually pulled that one out. He won pretty handily. Um, well, not by a, a chunk. It's still a swing state. But I mean, he he ended up pulling out a win down there in, in, um, in Georgia. And so Georgia is a little bit more of a swing state than it used to be. And not only that, Trump not only lost Georgia last time, but then after he lost the election in November, he spent the next six weeks, the next couple months tweeting about how it was rigged and there's no point in voting. And so what happened on election day of November 2020 in, in Georgia, they also had a couple of Senate races. There was one special election Senate race that was going on and then just the regular Senate race going on. So both of the seats in Georgia in the Senate... They were both up for for grabs back in 2020. And in both of those races, Republicans had the most votes. But the thing with Georgia races is, this is kind of different, but in Georgia races, um, you have to receive at least 50% of the votes. You have to get at least 50% or else you don't win the Senate seat. So there was like more than two people running for those Senate seats and on, on both the parties' platforms. And um, anyway nobody was able to clinch 50% on election day. So they had to have a special election, and that was held in early of January 2021. It was like January 4th or 5th. And um, so anyway, that happened. Now, for those next two months, basically the Senate had confirmed 50 Republicans who were going to be in it, but only 48 confirmed Democrats. So if the Republicans wanted a majority in the Senate for the current term that we're in now... All they had to do was win at least one of those Georgia Senate seats, and that was not going to be hard to do because in the initial election, Republicans had the lead for both of those seats. They just didn't have quite 50 percent in order to win those seats. But they had the they had the closest, I think, um, Purdue was his name, I think, um, running down there in in Georgia. He came within forty nine point something percent. So he was so close to 50 percent, but he just didn't quite eke out a win. So sadly, uh, Donald Trump spent the last couple weeks of his presidency complaining that it was rigged and saying there's no point in voting, and he did not go and campaign for the people down in Georgia. All he cared about was whether those, those people who were running the race down in Georgia, whether they would support him in overturning the 2020 election. And that was, that was what he tried to make that election all about. He tried to make it all about him. He did not go down and support those Georgia people who were running down there. And the Georgia Republicans ended up losing those seats. So we got two Democrats to win those seats down in Georgia, a state that the Republicans should have won both seats. They could have easily won at least one. But Donald Trump decided to use his last few months in office to divide the party instead of uniting it and putting in a couple of Republican senators down there who then could have stopped everything that Joe Biden wanted to do, at least everything that would go through the Senate. They could have put a stop to it. They, they We could have had no judges that Joe Biden wanted to appoint unless you could get the Republicans on board. I mean, we could have it could have been a lot better than the last couple of years have been the only silver lining here with the democrats being allowed to have 50 seats in the senate and thus being able to control it the only silver lining in that is that now joe biden has to own everything that he's you know everything that he's dealt with over the past year and a half now everything that he has messed up it can be laid at the feet of the democrats because they can't shift the blame onto republicans they won those seats so um, they made this bed. They can sleep in it. So that's the only silver lining. I mean, other than that, it was pretty disgraceful that the Republicans could not get a win for one of those seats down in Georgia last time around. And and I lay that, all the blame for that, really, at the feet of Donald Trump. Because if you look back at the 2020 election results in November, Republicans had the lead for both of those seats. And then Trump just crapped all over it and, and screwed that up. So... Here we are two years later. Now, one of those seats, like I said, it was for a six-year term. So they are going to have a Democrat senator from Georgia for six years from 2020. However, uh, the other seat was a special election. And actually, the the election to renew that one, that is for this year. So one of those seats is already back up for, for the taking again. And so it was currently held by Raphael Warnock. Now, he's a so-called pastor. He's not a pastor. <laughs> He's a so-called pastor. I mean, he says he's pro-choice, he's pro-abortion, and he used to run a Christian summer camp. But there were children being abused there, and he covered it up. This was all on video. He covered it up and it told the police to go away. It was all on tape, and uh, and he ended up winning that seat anyway, a Senate seat down in Georgia. So shows you shows you what a weak candidate he was, and how easy it would have been to topple him if Republicans had just showed up to vote in that election. But thankfully, we can say bye-bye to him in November, because the the guy running against him now, who just won the primary in Georgia this week, it was Herschel Walker, he won the primary for that race pretty easily. I think he had, like, several percentage points ahead of anyone else. Um, So he's a very strong Republican candidate, and it looks like he will probably beat Raphael Warnock in November. That's that's highly expected. And one of the funny things about that is uh, that—so he's a black guy— And if he defeats Raphael Warnock, Republicans are going to have more black senators than the Democrats will. Now that's kind of funny just because uh, it's not funny to me because I don't come from a standpoint, like I don't operate off a premise that Republicans are these racist people and, and Democrats are the only ones who care about like the black community or whatever. I don't operate off that premise anyway, but it is, it's humorous that they operate off of this whole thing of saying Republicans are racist and all black people need to vote for Democrats. Well, assuming that Herschel Walker wins this November, Republicans will have more black senators than the Democrats. So that's actually a little bit humorous to me. And then um, something else, though, that again, to kind of tie all this into Trump, um, because the Trump of it all is really something that we're watching this year as the races play out. Um, He's endorsed a lot of different candidates in some of these different races, like in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, uh, down in uh, Georgia. So it, this is really a test of Trump's influence, like whether or not the fact that he endorses somebody, whether it's really going to have a significant impact on the elections, um, even though he's not president anymore. If he's lost his influence, you know, it could imply that that he might not he probably shouldn't try to run again in a couple of years because he might not he might just not have the strength in the, in the Republican Party that he used to. Um, so what did we see in Georgia this past week? Well, the current governor Brian Kemp, he's running for re-election, but Purdue was coming back around and trying to primary Kemp, uh, and 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 Trump had endorsed Purdue, which is a little funny to me because if Trump had helped Purdue a couple years ago, if if Trump had helped Purdue try to get into the Senate back in 2020, instead of trying to make that all about him, if he'd actually just gone down there and campaigned for Purdue and got people out to vote for him and helped him, Purdue would be in the Senate right now. He wouldn't need to be running for governor against Brian Kemp. So Purdue lost, even though he was endorsed by Trump, he he lost. Kemp beat Purdue. Uh, and then a, a Brad Raffensberger is the Secretary of State down there. Now Trump had endorsed a primary challenger against Brad Raffensperger, and Raffensburger won there too. So this is just showing that Trump doesn't quite have the juice that he used to. Now, I'm saying this, I don't like Brad Raffensburger either. Like I think he let a lot of stupid stuff go on down there in Georgia in the last election. So I th- I think he did screw up. Um, not that I'm saying the election was rigged, but I don't think Brett Raffensperger did a good job of what is one of his primary responsibilities as the Secretary of the State, that he's supposed to um, he's supposed to maintain the fair elections and equitable elections for everybody. And he did not do that. I don't think he did a great job of that last time around. So I understand why Donald Trump's mad at him. But I'm not really commenting on that at the moment. I think... This is just kind of interesting that Trump just doesn't have the juice that he used to to overthrow these guys. It used to kind of be in the Republican Party that if you were not loyal to Trump, you know, you didn't really have a chance that you could get swamped in your primary, that you could get primaried out. Um, Madison Cawthorn was he now he has his own You know, he's got his own slate of problems. Some are his own fault. Some are not. But he created a lot of problems for himself. He was a Trump backed guy, but he lost his primary a couple weeks ago uh another dr oz over in pennsylvania we'll comment on that but oz that he might not win that race over there in pennsylvania it's still being calculated uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that um so uh, and that was someone that trump had endorsed so anyway trump just might not have the juice anymore um so that that's all i'm kind of pointing out here it just kind of shows an interesting evolution in our politics lately uh and and we're looking right now at whether trump should try to run again in 2024. I mean, ultimately, that's up to him. And as I've said before, I kind of hope he doesn't. I would like for the party to move on past the Trump antics and and just to to get something new and fresh. OK, I would love to see Ron DeSantis or Mike Pence run and or Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz has already said he intends to run again, and I'd love to see him try. Uh, the problem, though, um, the problem is if Trump runs and you have all these other guys running too, in that kind of situation, I think Trump would probably pull out a win in that case. You know, if it was just one of those guys, if it was, if it was just Trump versus Ron DeSantis, I think Ron DeSantis would probably win that. Because I think this is the moment for Ron DeSantis. I think he's made some great strides over the past couple of years, um, done some great things. I think this is his moment. But if we see Trump versus Mike Pence, and Ron DeSantis, and Ted Cruz and asa hutchinson and mike pompeo and nikki haley if it's trump versus like 10 people trump does have the base i think he would pull out a win in that situation so we just really need uh, you know if it's not trump if trump's not running let all the other guys go for it i don't care i think they're all great well not asa hutchinson but he won't (laughs) he won't make a splash anyway but if it all these other guys i would love to have them if it's trump versus 10 of them Trump's probably going to pull it out, and he'd be the nominee in 2024, and and then just yikes, you know. I don't. <laughs> Trump would go into that if Trump was president again. I think the party would unite around him, but he just he's not going to have the same pool of awesome people to to pull from to to uh, to help his presidency the second time around. Like I think even if Trump won again, his best days are really behind him uh, because the first time around he had great people in the Oval Office with him guiding his hand. People like Mike Pence. uh, People like William Barr, who I talked about, uh, I read his book recently. Um, He had these people surrounding him to help him through, to help him navigate the sharky waters of D.C. that he was not very experienced with. Now, if he gets in there again, he's a little more experienced, but he's not going to have those level-headed people support him the second time around. He burned too many bridges. So I just don't think that Donald Trump, if he won for 2024... I just I don't feel like he would have a great team who could go in there and 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 make a second great term. I, I really think this is time for some fresh meat, some new blood, and and to see one of these guys like like I think Ron DeSantis is my favorite. I still love Ted Cruz. I still like uh Marco Rubio. I haven't heard much from him lately. But I you know, if someone like him gave it a shot, I'd I'd love to see what he can do. So We'll we'll kind of wait and see. Uh, also, on the Pennsylvania race, that was not this past week. Pennsylvania's race was nearly two weeks ago, and we still don't have an announcement yet of who won. There were like over there were millions of votes cast in Pennsylvania, and it's it's Dr. Oz and uh, I I can't remember the other guy's name. I want to say it's McCormick. They are neck and neck on the on who's going to win that race, and Oz is leading. By point zero seven percent right now, not point seven percent, point zero seven. I mean, this is this is a case where there were millions of votes votes cast, and yet there's like just a few thousand votes different. There's like one thousand votes different between the two candidates. Last I checked, it's like nine hundred. Oz did have the lead. He's the Trump endorsed candidate. He's not conservative. Like he's one of these guys who he. He, he doesn't, he, there, there's a whole bunch of problems with Dr. Oz. <laughs> he has been super liberal his entire life. And it's only recently that he says, oh, now I'm conservative. Now I'm Republican. And he's going to run for a race in Pennsylvania. And it's like, there's nothing conservative about this guy in his history or anything. So it's just like, we don't know that we can trust him really to govern conservatively. And um, so he's running in Pennsylvania. And uh, he only leads by 0.07%. So here, but here's what I wanted to just comment about that, really. ultimately, no matter who wins, it is ridiculous that here we are two weeks later after the primary election up in Pennsylvania, and we still don't know who won it. We still don't know. Can you imagine if this was like the presidential election, and we had to wait this long to know who won it? I mean, we did go through that back in 2000. Al Gore and George Bush, they recounted Florida like three times. And every time they recounted it, George Bush was in the lead. And eventually the Supreme Court had to step in and say, stop recounting because you guys just keep recounting and and Bush keeps on winning. It's time to call it. But that was another race where it was like a thousand votes apart. And you tell me, are there still hard feelings about George Bush versus Al Gore? (laughs) Is there still, you know, people saying up to today that George Bush stole that election or that the Supreme Court stole that election from the Democrats? You know, they still say that to this day. So whenever you have something that's that close, it's really not good for the long-term health of the country because people don't trust those election results. And now when the Pennsylvania results come out, are people going to trust them when it's been this long? When they spent so much time after election day continuing to accept mail-in ballots and, and include those into the mix? You know, as far as I'm concerned, election day is election day. So you only count the ballots that you've received up to that point. You don't wait for, you don't wait three or four more days or a week later for more ballots to come in. You you use the ones people have months to mail in those ballots. They have several weeks before the election where they can mail it in. So if they wait to the last minute and it doesn't arrive in time to be counted in the election, too bad. Shouldn't it work then? And and frankly, they shouldn't be mailing ballots in for months ahead of time anyway. But they should not be giving you. They shouldn't be giving you time after election day to still accept your your ballots. So it's just it's it's wildly irresponsible of how they're running elections up in Pennsylvania. We had a whole big mess in 2020. We've had a whole big mess now in 2022 on this primary. And you can you can be sure there will be a mess in 2024 because that'll be a presidential election year if they don't fix these problems. At least Georgia has kind of fixed its problems that it had last time around um they had a much cleaner election this time but pennsylvania my gosh what is going on down there (laughs) or up there i'm in missouri so it's i guess pennsylvania is up there over to the side over there anyway they still don't have a winner yet and that's ridiculous and and i can't wait until someday when i tell my son you know you know at one time in this country we had an election day and then i'm sure he'll look at me and he'll say is that like election month daddy and I'll say, well, yes, but at one time we had our elections on a specific day and everybody went out and they voted on that day. And then they came out that night after they finished counting the votes and they told us who won the election. And he's going to say, well, wait, daddy, what do you mean? They would count all the votes on the same day, but, but that could take hours. Like what about nap times for all the Pennsylvania poll workers? What about leaving time for those trunk loads of votes to get dropped off in the middle of the night? And I want to say, I know, son. But we used to follow this thing called the Constitution here in America. And sadly, ever since 2020, that seems to no longer be the case. When it comes to what the Constitution decrees as Election Day, we no longer follow that in this country. And if these problems don't get fixed, we're going to see them continue for years to come. Okay, well, let's finally go on to another story here. Um, I want to talk about—let me just read the headline— I just got to read the headline. This is from Newsweek. Sheep sentenced to serve three years at a military camp for killing a woman. <laughs> so there is a sheep, a ram. Technically, it was a ram. The ram killed a woman. It headbutted her several times, causing her to have internal bleeding, and she died. And they put the ram, the sheep, they put it on trial in Sudan. And it was, serviced, sir, it was sentenced to three years at a military camp. Let me read some of the story. A ram in South Sudan will spend three years at a military camp as punishment for killing a woman earlier this month. 45-year-old Hayu Chaping was hit repeatedly in the ribs by this ram, and so she later died as a result of the, the injuries. And in Sudan, it's actually part of their legal code that they will put animals on trial if an animal murder someone or even as other things i saw that they put a cat on trial for trespassing and they put the cat in jail so this ram has been sentenced to three years in a military uh what did it call it a military camp three years service in, in Sudan, and i looked up the, the death penalty in Sudan because i'm like okay you can kill a woman and you get three years in a military camp Do they have the death penalty in Sudan? So I looked it up. Yes, they do. And listen to what you can be put to to death for in Sudan. They put you to death for adultery, for prostitution, for drug trafficking. You can be put to death for drug trafficking in Sudan. You can be put to death for armed robbery. In fact, I saw they put four teenagers to death in 2009 for armed robbery. They said armed robbery is such a severe crime, they would try teenagers as adults. And they put 14—like, they weren't even 18 yet. They put four of them to death in 2009 for armed robbery. So all those things can get you the death penalty in Sudan, but you headbutt a woman to death and you get three years if you're a Ram. So, and then here's one more note to put on the story from Newsweek. It said, despite being innocent, a local court ruled that the Ram's owner, Duwani Dahl, will be forced to hand over five cows to the victim's family as compensation. So not only is the ram being put in prison for three years, but the owner has to pay five cows to the victim's family. And, and I, and I read that cows are acceptable as any type of compensation for anything over incident. So a little bit different culture, a little bit different culture. My wife said, um, if, if an animal ever kills her, she would not want to be equated in cow value. She wouldn't want to know how many cows she is worth. So, um, so anyway, Thankfully, we don't live in Sudan. OK, let's talk about what's racist for this week. Everything is racist. So if you want to know what's racist for this week, first of all, uh, I found out that the word chief is now racist. According to uh, down in San Francisco, they, they just put in a new regulation that they're not going to use the word chief in job titles because of its association with Native Americans. And so, um, you know, sometimes you hear chief thrown into a a job title like police chief, fire chief. You know, it just means the person in charge, the person who's ahead of something. Well, now that is considered a bad thing to use that word because it's associated with Native Americans, which when you, you know, when you say it like that, it sounds like, oh, it's bad to be associated with Native Americans. What's wrong with Native Americans? (laughs) Well, they said it's insensitive to use a title that's associated with Native Americans. And so... Um, I just don't understand why that's a bad thing, though, because you're not using the word chief in a bad way. It's something that's used to denote authority. Um, So anyway, uh, it doesn't really make sense. But that's kind of what this whole segment is about when we talk about what's racist for this week. It never makes sense. It's always something stupid. It's always something pointless. Social media users, they pointed out that the word chief, it doesn't even come from Native Americans. It comes from a French term, chef. Uh, and the, somehow that got translated over here in America. We brought it over and used it for chief and applied it to Native Americans, but they didn't even come up with that word themselves. So anyway, it doesn't have to make sense. doesn't have to matter. They do this to pretend that they are doing this for racial equality when really all it does is like, it's like saying to the Native American community, oh, this thing is associated with you. Well, we don't want to touch it then. Take it back. <laughs> we don't want it. And to me, that seems more racist than anything. But again, it doesn't have to make sense. Here's another thing that's racist for this week. Ice cream is now racist. Yeah, so Walmart uh, Walmart put out a new ice cream, and it's called the Juneteenth ice cream over at Walmart. And uh, now Juneteenth is this new holiday they've made up to celebrate the the like anniversary of when slavery was outlawed in America. Uh, they call that Juneteenth. And I, I think it's like June 19th, something like that. Frankly, I don't um, I don't have a problem with celebrating that day. I just, I think the word Juneteenth is a really stupid word. Like, I don't see why they call it that. Why can't you call it something? There's better names you can come up with. Juneteenth doesn't, it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, you could call it uh, Emancipation Day or, or Abolition Day or something like that. But you hear Juneteenth and it's like, what is that? I'd never heard that word until a couple years ago, so I don't see what the, I don't see where that came from. I don't associate it the word Juneteenth with the end of slavery. It doesn't, it doesn't make immediate sense to me what that's even all about. Plus, I'm okay with them making a holiday out of it, but if it's one of those holidays where like people don't go to work, you know, we already have one of those right at the end of May from Memorial Day. We have a national holiday right at the start of July. It's Independence Day, the Fourth of July. So. Right there in the middle of June, like two weeks before one, two weeks after another, do we really need another national holiday where everyone stays out of work? That, it just feels like that's going to... You keep adding these things in, and eventually the, pro, the productivity of the nation and what we can do in a year, especially what the government can do in a year, all of that gets lessened the more of these holidays you roll out where people don't have to go into work. So I'm okay with some national holidays, like uh, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. You know like like labor day is fine there at the start of august or september i mean you know those are fine they're kind of spaced out throughout the year but we but then you know you get into like you have one at the end of december and then another one right at the start of january with new year's day and then in january sometimes they'll do martin luther king jr day or president's day they start taking off work for all these things and it's like when can you ever get some momentum so anyway i don't know that's a whole other thing um where was i oh yeah ice cream (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so so Walmart is making Walmart is making a new uh, ice cream to celebrate Juneteenth, and it's a Juneteenth flavor, and it looks like some kind of chocolate flavor from the picture. like for real. This is a real thing. Or it was a real thing. So immediately, Walmart received a huge backlash for this. How dare you try to capitalize on the suffering of former black slaves? That, that was the argument here. Capitalized. They said, no, this is capitalism and this is bad. By the way, everything Walmart does is capitalism. But this was especially bad because you took Juneteenth and you tried to mix that with capitalism. And so that was somehow bad. So anyway, now there's, there's, so Walmart has apologized and they're not going to sell Juneteenth celebration ice cream in the month of June. So sorry if you were looking forward to that. What's kind of funny is... When Walmart put out the announcement or whatever, the thing that started all this off, also right next to it, they put out a Pride Month because June is going to be like LGBT Pride Month. So they also have like a Pride Month ice cream that they're putting out. And and they were both put out side by side. The Pride Month things went through. There was no controversy over that. <laughs> like, It's OK to, to capitalize. It's OK to do capitalism when it comes to gay pride, apparently. But they but but it's bad if you try to do capitalism for Juneteenth. So anyway, that again, as I've been saying, it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to make sense when it comes to the moral panic that the left is always, you know, every corner that they turn, they have to freak out about something. It doesn't have to make sense. In fact, here's another one. I know we I'm putting this under what's racist for this week, but this is, this is actually what's sexist for this week. Parasites are sexist. So not enough parasites Are named after women some scientists complain that's a real headline not enough parasites are named after women so scientists are upset that we don't have more parasites named after women that mean for real i don't i just keep saying it because i don't i it feels like a punchline all in itself (laughs) i don't even have to make a joke about that it's like there there it is and it's not just any scientists okay these are not some backwater these are not some radical scientists extremists no This is coming from the Royal Society of London, one of the oldest scientific communities founded in 1662. They put out a peer-reviewed paper on this subject. It's called What's in a Name? Taxonomic and Gender Biases in the Etymology of New Species Names. And in this paper, they complain that parasites are like, um, 82% of the time, new parasites are named after men, which... I didn't know they were really named after anything. They have these crazy scientific names. Anyway, 82% of them are named after men, and only 18% are being named after women. This is from the Royal Society of London, a society which in the past gave us great men such as Sir Isaac Newton and Stephen Hawking, but today it's publishing papers on why there are not enough parasites that are named after women. Which honestly causes me to ask this question: is science done? Like has science peaked? Uh, you know we and for for reals, we entered into a scientific age a few centuries back and where science became the end-all be-all of discovering truth and, and knowledge and it seems that science has kind of given up. you know now science is so um, it's no longer really based in trying to find the truth. science is really all about pushing narratives, uh, power grabs and using science to push political angles. Um, so it seems that as science has become more politicized, it's become less credible. And it makes you wonder when you see stuff like this, are scientists even trying anymore? You know, are they, are they more interested in being woke than in discovering new, new data and relevant information? Like, it, it, and here's what I'm saying, here's the effect of this. Are we moving into a time where science is no longer going to be the final authority? Like we all, you know, it's already in places like the medical community that we don't really see them as the final authority on medical issues. We don't know who to trust on that kind of stuff anymore. And it feels like and science is kind of a bigger part of that, that it, I don't know if in the future, if we're going to look to scientists as the authorities on on what used to be known as scientific data or truth, that we're leaving a scientific age and now we're entering into a new a new era where truth is so much more relative. It's, we're so postmodern now. We're almost post-postmodern to where we just don't care anymore what the scientists have to say, because look at what they're doing. They're putting out papers, peer-reviewed papers, which means other scientists looked at this and said, yep, this is spot on, putting out papers about why parasites need to be named after more, more females, as if that's something that even matters. I remember as a kid, we had this teacher, uh, a substitute teacher, and her name... Was Mrs. Johnson? She was the—I'm sure she's not alive anymore. So I'm just gonna say it. Like she was the worst substitute teacher you you can imagine. We just hated her. She was so bitter and hateful and grumpy, and and I had her as a substitute in kindergarten, and I had her as a substitute in first grade, and in second grade, and in third grade, and she was just one of the most hateful old ladies that you could. That you just just you know, the most hateful old lady you can imagine. Like the the grumpy old woman who's like the teacher or the the schoolyard on the show recess, you know, that, that grumpy old lady on there, that was Mrs. Johnson. You know, that's just the perfect encapsulation of her. So Mrs. Johnson, uh, she grew up in some part of the some part of the United States that had a lot of hurricanes and she would tell stories about surviving through hurricanes like as a little kid and she and she told us that when she was little all the hurricanes were named after men and it wasn't until i don't remember when but at some point there was this feminist uprising that they were upset the feminists were upset that all the hurricanes get to be named after men why can't women be named after hurricanes too or why can't hurricanes be named after women is what i mean why can't why won't they give hurricanes female names <laughs> so so the the meteorologists started doing that they started giving feminine names to the hurricanes. So um you know that's why we have like Hurricane Katrina instead of Hurricane Kevin. H- Hurricane Kevin doesn't sound that scary anyways. But so at some point they started naming hurricanes after uh after women and not just men. Even as a kid I was confused by that. I was like wait, isn't that kind of like a good thing if women if it's a good thing for women, right? If they're not having hurricanes named after them? Like why do women want to have hurricanes named after them? I don't know. Just seemed like creating a problem where there wasn't a problem before. So they say that Republicans don't respect women. They say Christians don't respect women. They say conservatives don't respect women. You know that We hear all this kind of stuff all the time. If you're pro-life, you don't care about women and what they do with their bodies and all that. I'm just going to point out, it's not the conservatives pushing this kind of stuff, okay? It's the rest of the world trying to name parasites after women, trying to name hurricanes after women, giving a ram only three years in prison <laughs> for killing a woman. That's not Republicans doing that. I just want to point that out. Before I close down later, I just want to mention this here. Uh, If you want to get in touch with Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast, you can send us an email to fierybutpeaceful at gmail.com if you see some fake news. Send it our way, and whoever gets it to us first, they'll get credit for it. And if you want to stay in touch throughout the week, we're on Twitter. It's at Fake Weekly. And also, if you like Bible studies, or if you just really dig the sound of my voice, I have another podcast. It's called Cross References. This one has nothing to do with news or current events, but it's what I consider my main podcast. And that one has new episodes on Mondays, uh, which this one is coming out on a Monday, too, this week. So... You get a new episode of both of these today. Just go look up cross references after you're done with this one. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get this podcast. You can also find cross references. And just as I was recording this, uh, it looks like Nancy Pelosi's husband. His name is Paul. Uh, he was arrested for a DWI or a DUI. Excuse me, arrested for a DUI early Sunday morning. Uh, about 4:30 in the morning, he was pulled over by police and are arrested for driving with a blood alcohol content level of more than 0.08. And, uh, of course, Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. I'd never really heard much from Paul Pelosi before, but she was over on the East Coast. He was back home where they live around San Francisco over there on, on the West Coast. Uh, it sounds like police pulled him over, uh, asked him who he was, and he said, well, I'm Nancy Pelosi's husband. And then they asked him, well, sir, we're going to have to ask you to step out of the car. He said, how dare you? i'm nancy pelosi's husband they asked him sir have you been drinking and he said of course i have i'm nancy pelosi's husband and we'll keep you updated if we hear any more details on this breaking story uh let's go into a beyond the headline for today Okay, so my be beyond the headline today. Um, this is actually from I guess it's like a blog. Um, it's called Build for Tomorrow. It's by Jason Pfeiffer, and uh, anyway, I saw this shared. I think it popped up in my on my news tab on Facebook, and I saw this shared, and I cl- and I clicked on it. This was a great piece. So it's talking about. Here's the headline. Let me start with that. Here's the headline. It said, "This one question can predict a happy relationship, according to data science." Which let me just point out right there, the phrase data science data science is like a it's one of those phrases that's meant to make it sound authoritative or something. You could just say data, you could just say science, but anyway, it sounds a little more authoritative if you, if you call it data science. So anyway, this one question can predict a happy relationship according to according to research is what I'm going to say this. okay? it's according to research because um, that's what it is according to data. But I do believe this data because this this demonstrates something that I've seen play out time and time again and as I've observed. As I've gotten to know people and, and watched relationships in my life, this is so so true. Um, this one question that can predict whether your relationship is going to be happy. So they they looked at at people who had been in relationships for a while, and they just kind of measured. You know, hey, five years into this, ten years into this, are you still happy with this relationship? Are you still satisfied? Are you know? Are you glad you married this person? Um, and and here's what the article says. It's relatively easy to predict how people will swipe on apps because we know for example that people swipe vigorously on tall men, rich people, people of desired races, though folks though folks will rarely, rarely admit that, and people who are similar to us, even in meaningless ways. For example, your likelihood of matching increases by 11.3% when a person shares your initials. So, you know, it's pointing out here, we have all these things that we look for in a mate, all these things we look for whenever we are trying to find someone to marry, someone to date. But which of these things really do predict relationship success? You know, we say, we, you know, for a girl, you might be looking for a tall guy, for a rich guy, um, for, as it pointed out there, some, if, you, if you meet someone who shares your initials, well, it said you're 11.3% more likely to choose them to, to go on a date with them or end up with them. But that's one of those things that's really... It's kind of meaningless. I know when you meet someone and you like a lot of things about them and oh my gosh, you have the same initials, it feels like, oh, is this a sign from heaven? Am I supposed to be with this person? You know, we look for little things like that. We play these little tricks in our minds and we think that that is some kind of indicator that we're, that you're meant to be with that person. But here's what the article says. Do those traits really predict relationship success? And the answer is no. Before I read into a whole, they, they looked for that data for almost 12,000 couples The answer is no. They looked for all kinds of things of of correlations between people. Demographics, physical appearance, sexual preferences, interests, health, values, more. They went into all this kind of stuff and they said, does this predict whether you will be happy five or ten years later? Okay? They looked at all this data here. They just applied this from a data perspective. And they said, there's really no way to predict whether you are going to be happy being in a relationship with this person. Like, there's no particular one thing that correlates for everybody except for one there was one thing one indicator that would be a huge indicator to whether you were happy with that relationship five years down the road 10 10 years down the road okay and i'll give you a hint it's not all this stuff like and how tall the person is and how good looking they are and how much money they have those things those are the things that we might think about as we're looking for a mate But those things are not predictive of satisfaction with the relationship over time. Okay? Except for one thing. There is one thing that is a huge indicator into whether you're going to be personally satisfied satisfied and happy years down the road. And that is if a person is happy with their life before the relationship. If a person is happy with their life before the relationship. Now that is so wise right there, guys, that's so true uh, because so many people think that if they can just get into a relationship, that's how they're gonna find happiness. Like they just think, oh, I need to find I need to find that guy, I need to find that girl and once we're together, they will complete me and then I will be happy. That's what people think a lot of times. They think the relationship is what's going to fulfill them. It's what is what's gonna make them finally be happy. But here's the truth. your general happiness, is not going to change all that much before you're married compared to after you're married. Okay? If you're generally happy, you know, happy-go-lucky, happy friendly person, you're you're if that's how you generally are already, you're probably going to be happy after you're married. If you're someone who's just a generally sad person, just have kind of a sad attitude, always looking at the negative, okay? A husband or wife is not going to come in and turn you into a happy person. All right? It's and actually remember this, it's not your husband or your wife's job to make you happy. That's not their job. And that's often like a, a burden that, that we want to put on our spouses after we get married. We want to say, oh, well, now it's your job to make me feel fulfilled, you know, to bring me satisfaction with my life, to meet my needs. That's not something another person can do. You're never going to be satisfied with another person if you, make that, if you make your happiness dependent on them. You have to learn to be happy before a relationship. OK, it's not someone else's job to make you happy. So, you know, if just to, to anyone out there who's listening, I just felt like this article was so wise. And the, the show is called Fake News because so much stuff in the news is fake. And yet it was so refreshing to me to finally find something in the media that actually just told the truth and gave some great advice. You know, if you're out there, if you're praying for God to send you a mate and you just think you're never going to be happy till you find that right person. I just want you to remember this when it comes to being happy in life. You need to figure that part out on your own. It's not your husband or your wife's job to make you happy. Okay? You're not going to find another person and find that missing piece that makes you feel fulfilled and happy. That's not what a person does for you. You have to, you have to figure that out on your own. So don't be, think, don't be looking for Mr. Right, Mrs. Right, thinking this is what I need to, to be satisfied in life. Because here's what the article says. If a person was happy with their life before the relationship, they are four times more likely to have a happy relationship. In other words, if you were to ask one important question at the beginning of a relationship, that question is not, what are you looking for?" That question is, are you satisfied with your life right now? So I just love the fact that this, you know this was secular research. it figured something out that's actually true, <laughs> something actually useful for once from the media. So of course, it didn't come from any like have, you know, major news article It came from Jason Pfeiffer's blog. Uh, and let me let me check that out again, what that was called. It's Jason Pfeiffer, that's spelled F-E-I-F-E-R, jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. His blog was called Build for Tomorrow, and uh, it looks like they have a lot of interesting blog posts on there. <laughs> you know, in modern times, you're not going to find the best advice for living your life on Fox News or or MSNBC or one of those. You are you probably are going to find it on a blog, so I, I'd go check that out if I were you. All let right, right, um, let's, let's close down for today with some reflections on this Texas shooting and I say close down. I'm going to talk about this for a few minutes. Uh, if you don't want to hear about it, good time to tune out. Cause honestly, I don't want to talk about it, uh, but there's something I do feel like kind of needs to be said after, after we've had now like five or six days to reflect on this. Um, I didn't want to talk about this earlier in the week. Like when Tuesday, Wednesday hit, I just kind of thought, you know, no politics right now. Like I just don't want to even deal with the political stuff. I just kind of like my heart went out to those families in Texas. Uh just my 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 prayers went out to them because that was that was so devastating to hear about just the unspeakable evil that took place out there. And I didn't even want to see it. I knew it would because everything does nowadays, but I didn't want to see it turned into a political football. I just felt like this was such a tragic horrific thing to see people go through. That you know, I didn't I didn't get on Twitter and post you know, my snarky, sarcastic comments like I usually do on Twitter. Didn't start any Twitter fights. I just didn't even, you know, I kind of got on to, to see the headlines and then I just turned it off. I didn't want to talk about it. It is just sickening what happened. Um, so I just kind of decided early on in the week, no politics right now. I thought even when I do the show, I don't want to talk about it. Um, and, then, and then after having, you know, five or six days here to reflect on everything, um, I do have some thoughts I want to share. Uh, because the no, the no politics thing, that's not how most politicians took it. They immediately turned this into a fight about gun control. I mean, before the bodies were cold, li- literally, before the bodies were even cold, the liberals were already blaming guns and saying the answer to this was more gun control, which is not the, the tack that they used, you know, a few weeks ago when a nut job shut up a subway or when a Muslim terrorist took a synagogue hostage, there wasn't a whole big thing about guns on that, on those events when those involved guns too. But this time they blame the guns. So there's always a political angle to these things that they choose to, whether they want to make a big deal out of it or ignore it. That's always for political reasons. And um, it's, so it's never consistent. The only consistency they have, you know, I thought was when there was that mass murder event at a parade late last year where a black supremacist rammed his suv into a parade you know if you remember they also blamed the vehicle for that one so that was one place where they you know they blamed the vehicle then they blame the guns now they didn't blame the guns a week ago when a guy had shot up a supermarket and killed several black people he i think he was like some white supremacist nut job so they blamed white supremacy and we had a whole week of talking about white supremacy and then this happened and now there's going to be a whole week of talking about guns until something else happens you know Monday or Tuesday this week, and then we spend the next week talking about whatever that is. If you know, say the Supreme Court comes out and rules on the abortion thing, then we spend a week on that. So it's just always one thing after another. But I really just had a sickening feeling when when this happened. Um, not just not just because of what happened with the kids' families, but I know they're going to try to use this as a catalyst to try to push through some kind of gun control re- legislation. Um, we know that Democrats don't believe in the Second Amendment. They, would, they used to pretend that they did, and yet they would always—like we always knew uh, when President Obama, you know, he'd go out and say he believed in the Second Amendment. It's important that people have a right to bear arms, but we need to have some what he'd call common sense legislation. Well, you knew he didn't really believe in the Second Amendment because he was always saying we need to have legislation like Australia, like, you know, this or that other country, where they had no guns allowed. So they were always pushing for, for us to have laws more like places like Australia— where they didn't have as many guns and or, or any guns and and people couldn't defend themselves from the government over there and that's why you saw those terrible things happen in australia after, during the covid lockdowns the people had no way to to resist a totalitarian government and the government had no reason to feel, fear the australian people because they had disarmed them so early on early on they, they i just got really worried about this thing um I could tell they were going to use this kind of like the George Floyd thing. They used emotion two years ago to defund the police and push. And they said, you know, hey, if you're not on board with Black Lives Matter and defund the police, then just shut up. Just don't say anything. And they tried to use the emotion to silence anyone who would who would speak against it. And what did we see because of that? We saw a crime wave. We saw a murder spike in this country like we hadn't seen in decades. Uh, because the police had been pushed out of these big cities. They'd been silenced. They'd been defunded. So for almost two years until, until the State of the Union this year, when Joe Biden, President Biden, finally reversed course on that and said, no, we don't believe in defund the police anymore. You know, they used that for two years and they used emotion to push that. And, I, you know, I'm a little nervous. They're going to try to push a um, a gun grab with this. So that was in the early part of the week. And then as the week went on, we learned more about just the disastrous police response after what happened uh, at that, with that shooting. So a man was outside the school shooting his weapon. I think it was Tuesday at like 1130 AM, 1130 AM. He was outside the school and shooting his weapons. And he, he shot his weapon for 12 minutes before entering the school. He was right outside the school and the school didn't even have their like front door locked. He just walked right into the school He walked right into a classroom, which should have been on lockdown because there's a man shooting a gun outside. This door was like just propped open. And he walked into this room and he killed the teacher and started killing kids. And 911 was was first called at 1130 a.m. Okay, 1130 a.m. That was when 911 was first called. And I believe he was still outside shooting at that point. But then he walked inside, walked into a classroom, locked the door. Police were there within five minutes, okay? 1130, 911 is called. Police are there five minutes later. Five minutes later, they were there, and and they were right outside the door of the classroom, okay? So within five minutes of 911 being called, the police are right outside the classroom. And over the next hour, more and more officers continued to arrive, and they waited outside the door. They were outside that room for over an hour. There's multiple 911 calls from within the room there was a little girl inside the room and she called at least six times over the next like hour saying that there were several kids shot inside but there were also several still alive and the whole time that that was going on the police officers were just waiting outside the door they said that they were waiting for more backup to arrive and they said that they needed a key to open the door um you know as if cops don't Break down doors all the time in their line of work. They have equipment they use to to bust open doors all the time. But they said no, we need a key to get into this room. And and they were there. They wait outside the door until twelve fifty p.m. Now that would be eighty minutes after the first nine one one call. And as I said, they were on the scene outside the door of this classroom in five minutes. That means they waited outside that door for 75 minutes while this psycho was in that classroom and he was taking his time to kill... uh, I don't know how many of the kids. I think he killed about all of them in that room. Took his time. They waited out there 75 minutes as he picked those kids off. And not only that, but during this whole time, there's parents outside the school and they were screaming at the cops. They were begging them to go in and save the kids. The parents were begging if they could go in and save their own kids. And when they tried to run in there, they tased a parent, they arrested parents, tackled them to the ground, who were trying to go in, trying to go in themselves to save their kids. They wouldn't let the parents go in and do it, but the cops weren't going to do it either. They sat outside the door. So, I'm willing to wait for more information to come out, like, investigations to be done, on why these cops didn't feel, like, Like they needed to move into the room to save the kids. I'm honestly, I'm willing to hear their side of the story. I'm willing to. But the more information that comes out, the worse it always looks for the police. Like the more information we get, the worse that the police look. Uh, Because it wasn't, you know, it, it didn't even end up being the police themselves who ever stopped this murderer's killing spree. It was Texas Border Patrols. They're the ones who finally went in there and, you know, if if it hadn't been for them, if it was up to the cops, we might still be sitting outside the door waiting for someone to go in and, and and kill this guy. It was the Texas Border Patrol who finally stepped in. Let me explain to you what happened. So Border Patrol arrived on the scene. They actually did something to stop this evil gunman. Okay, let me read you this story from the New York Post. Jacob Alvarado had just sat down for a haircut when he received the horrifying message from his wife, Tricia, a fourth grade teacher at the Uvalde, Texas Elementary School. There's an active shooter, she wrote. Help, she sent, before sending a chilling, I love you. He immediately leapt out of his seat, grabbed the barber's shotgun, and sped off toward the school. His daughter, a second grader, was locked inside a bathroom while his wife hid under desks with her students. He said that he entered the wing of the school where he knew his daughter was located, and as he searched for her, began clearing all the classes in her wing. Two officers with guns drawn provided cover while two others guided dozens of hysterical children and teachers out to the sidewalk. When Alvarado finally saw his eight-year-old daughter Jada, they embraced. But he kept moving. He kept moving forward to bring more students to safety. And then he—he's qu- quoted here: "I did what I was trained to do." So this border patrol agent, just—he's at a haircut, hops up, grabs a shotgun, races off to the school, starts getting kids out, gets his daughter out. But he didn't just stop when he got his own daughter out. He went back in to save more kids. And he's not the one who actually shot the, the man in the classroom. I'm just saying, this was a Border Patrol agent. It was other Border Patrol agents who, who met up with him there, too. They finally did breach the classroom and kill the gunman. Here's what another... This wasn't um, the Post. I think This might have been the New York Times. I'm not sure. But anyway, here's another report. Federal agents... The, um, these are Border Patrol, okay... Federal agents who went to Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas on Tuesday to confront a gunman who killed 19 children were told by local police to wait and not enter the school and then decided after about half an hour to ignore that initial guidance and find the shooter, say two senior federal law enforcement officers. According to the officials, agents from BORTAC, the Customs and Border Protection Tactical Unit, and ICE's Homeland Security investigations arrived on the scene between noon and 12.15 p.m. on Tuesday. Local law enforcement asked them to wait and then instructed HSI agents to help pull children out of the windows. So it was federal agents who decided, you know what? (laughs) After waiting half an hour, because the cops are like, oh, we can't go in there yet. We got to wait for more backup. You know, the federal agents are like, no, we're not waiting. There's a guy in there with a gun on a bunch of children. There's children in that classroom who are bleeding out. They finally went in and killed the guy. The cops were not doing the job. It took border patrol. That one guy I was telling you about before, one of the border patrol agents, he's not the one who pulled the trigger to kill this gunman. But like I said, he was in there saving people. Alvarado, he posted a Facebook post. He said one of his daughter's teammates and and, and friends was one of the 19 students who were killed that day. And he says, I'm so angry I'm so angry, saddened, and grateful all at once. Only time will heal their pain, and hopefully changes will be made at all the schools in the U.S., and teachers will be trained and allowed to carry in order to protect themselves and students. That's what he wrote. That his solution would be that hopefully more teachers will be trained on how to carry and handle a firearm, and that hopefully if, you know, that the more teachers who are trained and and armed the less likely it would be for something like this to ever happen again. And, and I point all this out because you're going to hear the Democrats try to use this horrible situation to say that this is why we need more gun control that, that, you know, they'll say that we need to outlaw guns entirely. Um, But as, as this story, as more details have come out, I just feel like more and more, it's proven their narrative wrong. Like on a lot of things, basically on every point that they want to make about why this is an argument in favor of gun control It actually makes the opposite case. Uh, You know, for one thing, they mock the idea that the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. But you know what? That's exactly what happened. The Border Patrol agents burst in and they didn't burst in blowing bubbles. They were shooting back and and they killed this evil gunman. And second of all, I just want to point out here, too, it was Border Patrol. It was ICE, the, the branch of law enforcement that Democrats hate the most. They constantly try to villainize these people. But it was ICE who stopped the classroom killer. It wasn't the cops. Okay, it was Border Patrol people. So remember that next time you hear... yeah, How many times have you heard AOC say we need to abolish ICE? They're constantly saying that we need to actually get rid of any immigration enforcement. Well, just going to point out, thank God for these guys this week, because they stopped the classroom killer that the cops weren't going to do anything about. Third, I just want to point out that hero dad that I read about. Um, he had no weapon to go to this school and and try to save his daughter. He didn't have a weapon on him at the time. He was in the middle of a haircut. He was probably like off-duty. So what did he do? He grabbed a shotgun from the barber. Now, what if that barber didn't have a shotgun in his shop because the Democrats had said you can't have private gun ownership? What if this ICE agent or the the Border Patrol agent, what if he had to show up at the school empty-handed? to stop the gunman and then the gunman shot him you know can you imagine if if democrats had their way and it was illegal for that barber to even own a shotgun what would he have done then you know do you and 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 maybe you'd say oh well the the kid who had the gun wouldn't have had one in the first place yeah but listen he's 30 minutes from mexico like <laughs> mexico's full of guns don't you think they're gonna if if the the good law-abiding citizens of america disarm themselves don't you think these, these people down in Mexico who are bringing in drugs and uh, human trafficking and, and weapons, don't you think they're going to continue to bring all that stuff up here? Don't you think we're still going to have guns in America? Don't you think bad people who don't care about laws, who are willing to shoot up a school, do you think a gun control law is going to stop them? They're still going to get weapons. Gun laws stop the good guys from having weapons. They don't stop the bad guys. Fourth, the Democrats say that private citizens don't really need guns because if you need protection, that's what the cops are for. But as we saw this week, the cops are not guaranteed to save you. That's what Democrats always say. That if you if you're worried about need, you know needing to protect yourself from some kind of criminal, that's what 911 is for. Call the police, they'll come save you. They can handle weapons. But look at what happened over there in Uvalde, Texas. The cops are not guaranteed to even bother to save you. That police, station, that, that police station was four minutes from the school. I looked at it on the Google Maps thing. Four minutes from the school. Like we saw in the timeline. Five minutes after the 911 call, they were there. They were at the school. They were outside the door. So they were there for five minutes after the 911 call. They were there five minutes later, but then they waited outside the room for 75 minutes. In their own words, they waited because they said they were afraid that they would get shot. So they stood out there and let kids be shot. Now, again, I'm willing to allow an investigation to take place and and let the cops give a better answer than that if if they're able to. But so hard, it just seems hard to imagine any justification for this. It it sounds more like cowardice. I hate to say that because I deeply respect the police in general. I deeply respect them but I just can't see any defense for their actions on this day. Because so far, when asked to give defenses, they've given really hollow answers. When they've been asked about this by reporters, they have, they've had some really crap answers for why they didn't go into that classroom to save the kids. And I'd say that any human who's listening to that reasoning, that, you know, to hear that the cops were afraid that they would get shot, they were afraid to charge into danger, so they just waited outside while children were being shot. I imagine any of us hearing that We we want to see these cops strung up and, and never seen again. But will these cops actually face any kind of prosecution or imprisonment for this gross dereliction of duty? I can guarantee you they will not. And the reason is this has already been decided by the courts. There is no constitutional right to police protection. That means if you call on the police to protect you and then they don't, You have no legal recourse. You can't sue an officer for being bad at his job. Now, I mean, if an officer attacks you or something, you can. But if he just decides not to help you, not to do anything about it, there's nothing you can do about it either. If he just decides, you know, you call in a cop to help you, and you ask him for help for, you know, someone's attacking you or whatever, and they're like, eh, I'm busy. I'm playing, you know, I'm playing solitaire on my computer. They can hang up the phone on you. And you can't do anything about that because you have no legal right, no constitutional right. Nowhere in the law does it say you have a right to be protected by the police. And there have been cases that tested this. People called the police. They showed up. The police didn't help the person in danger. The person sues the police. And the case is dismissed. Now, hey, maybe the cop is fired or something like that. But legally speaking, the cop is not obligated to help you. Or in other words, you cannot legally force the police to help you. In March 1975, there were some women who called the police in Washington, D.C., saying that there were rapists who had broken into their home. They'd already taken one woman hostage. Police came. They knocked on the door. Nobody answered. The three women were held captive, and they were raped for 14 hours by men who were only armed with a knife. That was it. Just a knife. That happened in Washington, D.C., where they have the the highest cop-to-civilian ratio in the country. And they showed up, knocked on the door, and the rapist didn't answer. So the police waited around for about five minutes and then left. The women later sued the police department, saying that they had failed to take her call seriously. But the case was dismissed, ruling that they have no legal right to police protection. You do, however, have a right to defend yourself. It's called the Second Amendment. And that's what the liberals want to get rid of, because they say that the police can protect us. There is another case, June 1999, a woman named Jessica Gonzalez. She got a restraining order from a judge. Uh, she got it against her husband because she didn't want him around her or her three daughters. She believed him to be dangerous. So a judge put out a restraining order against him. And this is the quote in the restraining order to the police. The judge told the police, you shall use every reasonable means to enforce this restraining order. After the restraining order was put out, the husband would not stay away. Jessica Gonzalez called the police. They did nothing. The husband came and kidnapped the girls one day. She called the police. They said if he doesn't return the kids by 10 p.m., just to call back. He never returned. She called back at 10, 10 p.m. The police said, why don't you wait a few more hours and then call back? She called back at 12:10 a.m. The police said that they would send someone. They never did. Then the husband rolls up to the police station at 3.20 in the morning and he started opening fire on the police. They fired back and killed him. But sadly, the three girls, they were 10, 9, and 7. The three girls were already dead. They were in the back of the truck. Jessica Gonzalez had been calling the police all day and they did nothing for her, even though she had a judge's restraining order. So she sued the police department. She said the police had a restraining order signed by a judge, and yet they hadn't done anything to help save her kid's life. The Supreme Court ruled against her, saying there is no legal right to police protection. However, you do have a right to defend yourself, and it's called the Second Amendment. And that's what the liberals want to get rid of, because they'll tell us, that don't worry, the police can protect you. You know, of course, two years ago, they were arguing that the police should be disarmed as well, <laughs> that, that they were killing too many black people, and so basically we should just have social workers respond to the 911 calls. Well, let me tell you this about whenever you call 911, okay? In Washington, D.C., which I already said, they have the highest number of police per capita in the country. The average response time from 911, from the time you call it until they actually arrive on the scene, is 8.5 minutes. Eight and a half minutes, Okay. On average, that's how long you'll be waiting from the time you first phone the police until they actually arrive at your house to help you. Eight and a half minutes. In New York City, it's 7.2 minutes. Los Angeles, 10.5 minutes. Atlanta, 11.1 minutes. That's how long you're going to be waiting if you call 911. Where I grew up, now that was a county where sometimes we just literally had two police patrolling the county. So if they were both over on the west side of the county, you could get, you could get away with whatever you wanted over on the east side. (laughs) Well, except you, you couldn't, if you wanted to like rob or hurt someone, you know, everyone there's packing. So you're not going to have much luck over there. But, but realistically, if you had to call the cops in where, in the county where I grew up, it was going to be 20 or 30 minutes before someone could get to you. Okay. But back to Washington, DC, highest police per capita in the country in that city. 8.5 minutes, eight and a half minutes. That's the average time you're gonna wait until the police arrive. So let me just ask you, if you have a rapist at your back door, if you have a school shooter in your hallway, you wanna call 911. And now you have eight minutes to wait until they arrive. So what do you wanna be holding in your hands for eight minutes? A slingshot? A baseball bat? A knife? Or a firearm? Get a gun. And keep it locked away safe, but keep it accessible if someone breaks into your house and learn how to use it. Defend yourself, because the police don't have to. Thanks for listening to Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. This has been Luke Taylor, hoping you'll have a great Memorial Day, unless you're Nancy Pelosi's husband.